It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Hello and welcome to the Votes and Verdicts podcast hosted by the litigation and policy team at Bloomberg Intelligence, the investment research platform of Bloomberg LP. This podcast series examines the intersection of business policy and law, and today we'll be looking at the litigation and policy catalysts that we're watching in March 2024, and that we think will impact companies across a number of different sectors. My name is Elliot Stein. I'm a senior litigation analyst covering litigation in the financial sector, and I'll be your host for today, March 1st, 2024. If you have any questions about any of the matters that we'll be talking about on this episode, please don't hesitate to reach out to us at your convenience with your questions. So we'll be discussing a handful of sectors and issues today. First, our antitrust analyst, Jen Ree, will discuss the antitrust challenges likely to face a pair of recently announced deals. The first being the $35 billion Synopsys ANSYS deal, and the second being the Capital One Discover deal. We'll then bring in Nathan Dean, our financials policy analyst in Washington, D.C., who will also talk a little bit about the Capital One Discover deal, but from a bank regulator perspective. Uh, And he'll also talk about the SEC's climate disclosure rule, which looks uh, like it'll be finalized in the coming week. Sticking with DC, we'll then bring in our healthcare policy analyst, Dwayne Wright, to discuss health insurer earnings and the potential impact of the 2024 elections on the drug pricing provisions of the Inflation Reduction Act. After that, Justin Teresi, who covers consumer and industrial litigation and policy, will talk about two major proposed rules expected in March by the EPA addressing PFAS substances, or forever chemicals as they're commonly known. After that, Matt Schettenhelm, our TMT litigation and policy analyst, will discuss a March 1st hearing in Meta's lawsuit challenging the FTC's plan to toughen terms of the social media giant's $5 billion settlement from 2020. Uh, concerning privacy violations. And last but not least, I'll discuss upcoming appeal oral arguments on March 13th in a terror finance case by U.S. service members against three banks, Danske Bank, Deutsche Bank, and Standard Chartered. All of this research, of course, is available on the Bloomberg terminal at BIGO. And just a quick word about Bloomberg Intelligence for those who are unfamiliar. We are the investment research platform on the Bloomberg terminal providing in-depth research on industries, companies, and markets, and delivering key data from BI analysts in their given industries. All right, so with all that out of the way, let's get started with the content. Jen, let's bring you in and talk about anticipated antitrust scrutiny of a pair of $35 billion deals. The first is the Synopsys uh, ANSYS deal in the semiconductor design software space. Uh, And the second uh, is Capital One Discover. Um, So on Synopsys and ANSYS, you've said the deal may be subject to an in-depth antitrust investigation this month in March, but you aren't sure entirely about the timing. You want to come in and tell us where that stands? Sure, absolutely. So, you know, I think it's important. I kind of think about these deals in two phases. Will they get in-depth scrutiny? And then at the end, what is going to happen? Will they get challenged? And the reason that in-depth scrutiny is important is because deals either get cleared in 30 days 
or they get cleared in a year. And there's really no in between. So the in-depth scrutiny basically triggers you into that year timing, um, which has implications for the deal. You know, it increases risk that the deal will get done and it has some implications for the seller. So this one, we do think probably has already gotten into in-depth scrutiny. Um, they signed on January 15th and they agreed to notify the regulators or antitrust enforcers, I should say, of their deal on January 29th. Now, they haven't notified the public as to whether they did that or not, that that's confidential information. Um, they have no obligation to do so. But at this point, I think they probably have filed, even if that January 29th date slipped. Um, and once they do file, then the FTC has 30 days, which is probably expired or is about to expire. And that would be when the in-depth investigation gets launched. And we think this will be the Federal Trade Commission because it is in the semiconductor area. And that's an area where the FTC has some expertise and experience. And can you give us a summary of the deal and why you think it'll be reviewed uh, so carefully by the FTC? Sure. I mean, these companies are not the kind of companies you hear about every day in the news. So I think for sure, I, let me talk a little bit about what they do. Synopsys is actually one of the largest competitors in an area that's called electronic design automation tools. These are for semiconductor makers, and these are tools that the semiconductor makers use to design the chips themselves. So the customers here are really big companies like Intel and Taiwan Semiconductor, and Synopsys has really only two main competitors, which are Siemens and Cadence. Now, ANSYS competes in a little bit of a different space. I should say it does overlap very, very slightly on the tool side, at the design side, but, but not very much. Its main product is software for evaluating the larger electronic systems where the chips are going to end up. So it's basically simulation software that the companies, the chip makers can use to evaluate how the chips are going to perform under different environments. Um, so as you can understand here, they have a lot of the same customers. And so um, ANSYS just sort of sits a bit downstream in, in the supply chain in a manner of speaking from where Synopsys is. And so they relate to each other in that sense, um, even though they're not, they, they really only compete slightly on the more upstream piece in the design piece. And I think that that's an intricate relationship. Um, and, and whenever there's an intricate relationship like that, the FTC is going to want to look into it because what they're going to worry about here is the fact that this is a highly technical market, a highly technical industry in which there has always been open standards because these technologies have to work together. The chip makers need the design tool and the simulation tool that work together. And the, the industry has always worked that way. But once Synopsys owns ANSYS, the question would be, will it now have the incentive to try to block out other competitors in both areas because they could make more money that way, obviously, um, and they could do it by tying the products together, either contractually or even technically, so that the chip customers can't really mix and match anymore. It's, it's a vertical issue, essentially, of foreclosure. And I think that the FTC is going to want to dig into this to understand this technology to begin with, and then understand what how synopsis incentives may change once they own this further downstream entity. And what do you think the FTC does at the end of its review? Do you think they'll challenge the deal? And if so, what, what does the timing look like for that? You know, I think there are a lot of really good arguments here, and I see this deal getting done um, because I think on the horizontal overlap side, it's a very tiny overlap that can be fixed with a very small divestiture well within the, the um the extent to which Synopsys agreed within the purchase agreement to, to sell off assets. But I think what helps here is that the companies have been partnering for years, presumably without any anti-competitive impact. So that helps. And we also view the buyers as the customers as power buyers. And that means they have some ability to discipline any efforts to limit them. They can threaten to switch to other companies. They can threaten to take the work in-house, which some of them actually have the capability to do that. And I think the really big thing here is that innovation is really needed in the chip area to support the AI trend. That's a big deal. And chips have to be more sophisticated to support it. Um, and these companies say together they'll be able to conduct the research and innovate in a manner that'll support these more sophisticated chips um, in a way that neither one of them could do on their own. And, and that's pretty pro-competitive. So I do think this deal will make it through one way or another. They would have to sue to try to block the companies from closing. And that would hit in about a year from now and probably take about five months before there was some sort of an outcome. And so that, that just addresses the U.S. What about other jurisdictions around the world? Where else might the deal be subject to review and where might it run into trouble? 
We think it may be subject to review in the EU and UK and China. It's not entirely clear. We're not concerned about China or the EU. Um, we, we are a little concerned about the UK. I know it's unusual to say we're not concerned about China because China has had a history of, of holding up deals involving American companies in this um, industry. But here we think China is actually lacking an in infrastructure in this kind of software that's needed for the design of chips, and they need these companies more than these companies need China. Um, and in that case, it's it's much more likely that the regulator there would clear the deal with some behavioral concessions that are good for Chinese companies um, rather than blocking it outright. Now, the UK is just really a wild card. And they were really tough on Microsoft Activision. They didn't mind standing out from the rest of the global regulators that cleared it, all, all except for the US. Um, and also aren't very happy about the, the idea of, of a behavioral remedy, which obviously is something that could work here because the companies could just promise to maintain open standards. So I think that the UK is a wild card. And if, if they have to review, which is unclear yet, that would be the one area where I would worry a little bit. Super interesting. Okay, let's um, let's turn to another big deal that was recently announced, Capital One and Discover. Uh, what are your thoughts about antitrust scrutiny of that deal? You know, this is really tough. It's one of the first deals that's come along that sits exactly in an industry that the agencies are, you know, really uh, unhappy about the level of consolidation that's already taken place and unhappy about the way merger enforcement has taken place in the last several years. So they're trying to tighten it up. They're trying to look at many more implications of banking deals than they have in the past, but they also have a deal in front of them. So basically, there's an anti-consolidation sentiment in financial markets and banking. Um, and particularly by the Department of Justice. I know Nathan will talk about the banking regulators. So you have a deal that sits right in that in that juncture, um, and you'd think knee-jerk reaction would be that they're just going to want to block it. They're going to want to stop the consolidation of two huge credit card issuers. But it also has massive pro-competitive efficiencies, uh, potentially. And that's an interesting situation because there has been unhappiness in the antitrust world with the Visa, MasterCard, credit card uh, network duopoly for many, 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 many years. I mean, as long as I can remember, those two companies have either faced litigations or allegations, at least, that they violate the antitrust laws and not very much can be done about it. So the, the, the regulator here, I should say enforcer, because the DOJ is not a regulator, it's an enforcer, but uh, we'll have the last say. Nathan will talk about the banking regulators th that will also have to approve this deal. There are many levels of approval it's going to need. But even if the banking regulators approve, the Department of Justice can still sue to block it. And I think it's really going to come down to how they look at the credit card issuing markets and how they weigh the pro-competitive aspects of the deal against potential for harm. And I think where the deal could run into trouble is if the, the Department of Justice defines very narrow markets in credit card issuing, rather than looking at all the credit card issuers out there that, that exist, which is a pretty competitive market, they could look at a smaller segment and they could say, look, Capital One and Discover tend to issue more credit to underserved populations, um, new credit card owners, subprime customers, and those that keep a revolving balance. Um, and those are the customers that will be harmed because they'll have fewer options. And with fewer options come increased costs. Um, and if they look at the market that way, it may be hard to argue that the pro-competitive pro -competitive benefits outweigh that harm. So I think this is going to get in-depth review. It's going to take, again, probably about a year. And the other wrench that you have to throw in there is that by the time a decision is made, we could have an entirely different administration and we could have different decision makers at the DOJ. And obviously that could have an impact here too. Super interesting and a lot of moving parts for sure. Um, all right, thanks, Jen. Uh, Nathan, let's bring you in. Let's stay on Capital One uh, Discover. Um, you know, Jen talked about antitrust review of the deal, but as she said, since this is a merger of uh, you know two banks, we also have to con consider the uh, prudential bank regulators as well. Um, so, Nathan, come in. How should we think uh, about uh, you know the bank regulatory review? And do you think the Fed and the OCC will approve this merger or not? So I think that what what will happen is is that we're cautiously optimistic that the Fed and the OCC will approve this merger, but along the timeline that Jen just mentioned, this will certainly take a year. You know, I know Capital One said that they were hoping for uh, approval and closing at the end of 2024. I don't think that's feasible one way or the other. It's going to be 2025 
at the earliest. But the way that we're looking at this is that the OCC in particular has five reasons why they should be looking at bank mergers under the Bank Merger Act. And that's the impact on the community, systemic risk concerns, competition and competitive concerns. Can this new entity combat anti-money laundering? And what are the managerial resources of this combined entity? Now, if you look at all those five factors, the last two, the, the AML and the managerial resources, I think you can set those aside. So let's focus on the community, the systemic risk, and the competition. Now, when it comes to systemic risk, the OCC will even say in their principles, and we have additional research out on the terminal about this, that the OCC will even say that if you are known as a globally systemic important bank, a GSIB, so you are a Bank of America, a JP Morgan, or a Citigroup, they are not going to approve a merger unless it's an emergency situation like we saw at the beginning of 2023. So in this case, though, if you take the assets of Capital One and you combine it with the assets of Discover, you get around $660 billion, which puts it on par with U.S. Bank and just up uh, just north of PNC Financial. But you certainly aren't approaching that threshold of $750 billion where the regulators would begin to get a little concerned. So I, I don't think the systemic risk concern is all that valid. And so we can take that factor and put it into the column of being cautiously optimistic. Let's talk about competition. You know, Jen mentioned how these are two credit card issuers coming together, and it's going to increase competition against the Visa and MasterCard. For example, Senator Durbin has a bill out there called the Credit Card Competition Act, in which he is trying to increase competition for Visa and MasterCard with the idea that it would lower fees. Now, if Capital One were to utilize Discover's network, and as of right now, we think uh, based off of their plans and statements, they'll utilize Discover's network for debit cards. Uh, their credit cards will probably remain on a Visa and MasterCard network for now. But over the long term, if that Discover network is utilized more, theoretically, Visa and MasterCard could see more competition. But also remember, the OCC is a bank regulator. They're not really focused on credit card competition per se. So again, I think cautiously optimistic, the, co the competitive nature can be put in the factor of the approval. And finally, it comes down to community impact. And this has probably been the number one, if not number two factor that the OCC and Fed have been looking at over the last few years when it comes to bank mergers is what's the impact on the community? And specifically here, they're looking at things called CAMELS ratings. They're looking at Community Reinvestment Act ratings. These are all ratings that are behind closed doors. We never see these in the public arena. But, you know, the OCC will, in particular, will be looking at Capital One and saying, okay, we see that you want to do this. What does this mean for individuals on the south side of Chicago? What does this mean for individuals in California? And they will go, sometimes they go neighborhood by neighborhood, and they say, what does this mean for those individuals here? Will they be harmed by this merger? And so, you know, I have to give Capital One the, the benefit of the doubt here that Capital One, when they were announcing this, has done a lot of that due diligence. So that, in a nutshell, is why we are very uh, conscious, are cautiously optimistic that this approval will go forward in 2025. You mentioned uh, Senator Durbin's Credit Card Competition Act, uh, which, uh, you know, I think aims to bring more competition uh, to Visa and MasterCard. Um, what impact do you think this deal will have on that proposed legislation? Uh, so, I think I, yeah, go ahead. Oh no, it's a great question because you know Senator Durbin has already come out and said, "Look, this isn't gonna, this isn't changing my my thinking." Uh, you know, Senator Elizabeth Warren has made statements that this merger should not go ahead, and the regulator should block that. So we in, we anticipate Senator Durbin to continue to pursue his path with this bill. And in fact, on April 9th, there's going to be a hearing with the CEOs of Visa and MasterCard and American Airlines and United Airlines. They're drawn into this because they have said that uh, if this bill were to go forward, mileage programs with the credit cards would essentially cease to exist. And so Senator Durbin is saying, come to the Hill and tell me that in person. Um, but we have always had a 30 to 40 percent chance that this bill would succeed, despite the fact it does have some bipartisan support. But ultimately, you're pitting the financial services industry versus the credit card industry versus the consumer advocates versus the airlines. And there are just so many different bits and pieces here. And I think that that threat that those credit card uh, airline programs could get cut uh, is enough that will keep enough policymakers on the sidelines for the rest of the year. Uh, but certainly it's going to bring a lot more attention to it. 
Great. Um, all right, let's shift gears uh, just a little bit. It sounds like the SEC is finally, after uh, two years, uh, going to finalize its climate disclosure rule, um, looks like March 6th. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so you know this rule has been one of, I think, the highest, uh, certainly one of the more controversial rules that the SEC has put out. And what this rule requires is if you are one of 6,900 public filers in the United States, plus some non-U.S. filers that are here, then you would have to disclose your emissions and climate change risk. Uh, this would go from scope one, scope two, and what are known as scope three, all types of emissions data. Scope three is emissions data for your supply chain and your customers. So if you're a bank and you have customers that you're financing, you would have to get their emissions data to go along with this. We know we've heard anecdotally some conglomerates saying, look, I have 15,000 suppliers. Are you telling me that I have to get uh, all the emissions data for that? And under scope three, the answer would be yes. So However, the SEC is going to finalize this on March 6th, and according to Bloomberg Law and some of the news reports we've seen, Scope 3 has been pulled out. Uh, this was actually a challenge for Chairman Gensler to get, uh, to get approved because on one hand, uh, and I think Elliot's going to talk about this after this, whatever they decide, there's going to be a court reaction to this. Somebody potentially could sue on this. And so you have to create a rule that potentially could be somewhat more advisable to the industry and advisable to the courts. But on the other hand, you have Senator Elizabeth Warren and some of the progressives on Capitol Hill concerned that this rule won't go far enough. All you have to do is look at the SEC meeting log from this week, and there have been individuals from Senator Warren, Senator Van Hollen, Senator Tina Smith, I mean, uh, Maxine Waters from the House of Representatives. They've all been over at the SEC probably concerned that the scope three measure is going to be cut. Um, now, other provisions that we've heard that potentially could be on the chopping block is the mandatory reporting for scope one and scope two. Now, look, you already have to report if your climate change risk is material. But if this becomes more of a disclosure rule, we had originally anticipated or estimated $18.4 billion in costs over six years. Um, if that is the case, scope three comes out, this mandatory reporting comes out and so forth. The rule is going to be substantially weaker than what it was proposed. And those cost estimates will certainly come down as well. That's great. And uh, yeah, I mean, you, you alluded to, you know, anticipated, anticipated litigation and, you know, certainly my view that once the SEC finalizes this rule, we'll see indus industry groups uh, come in and sue to challenge it. Um, you know, the question I get a lot is what type of arguments might we see challenging the rule? Um, and I think, uh, you know, there was a, a recent lawsuit uh, filed in California challenging California's climate disclosure laws. And, you know, I think that lawsuit gives us uh, a bit of a preview of some of the arguments that we would see challenging an SEC rule as well. One argument is a First Amendment challenge arguing, um, you know, it would be that arguing that the SEC can't compel speech that goes beyond non-controversial factual disclosures that are material to investors. Uh, a second argument um, would likely be that the rule is really a pretext for regulating climate change, which is really more in the uh, in the EPA's purview um, and goes beyond the SEC's authority, which would make it a violation of the Administrative Procedures Act. Uh, I'd also expect to see arguments that the costs of complying with the rule outweigh the benefits. Um, but, you know, a lot, of course, depends on what the final rule actually says. Uh, but given the composition of many of the federal appeals courts currently, like the Fifth Circuit and the Eighth Circuit, and of course the Supreme Court, uh, you know, I'd expect that uh, certainly some, if not many, of these arguments will be received favorably uh, by uh, the conservative judges on those courts. But stay tuned. We'll, of course, have to reassess once the rule is finalized, and we'll have to reassess again once uh, lawsuits are filed. Um, so, uh, you know, we'll circle back on those things uh, after the rule uh, comes out. Uh, all right, Dwayne, um, why don't we bring you in? We'll stick with DC policy talk, but we'll move to the healthcare sector. Uh, I know you followed uh, health insurer earnings pretty closely. Um, do you want to come in and give us your takeaways, including, you know, what red flags stood out to you and also what positives came out of earnings? Sure. Thanks, Elliot. So the big message coming out of earnings, and we can tie this to policy, is medical costs during the final quarter of 
2023 and, and even leading up to the final quarter of 2023 were quite high and higher than expected. And the outlook for 2024 is that we may see some more of the same um, without a, a clear sense of when those cost pressures could be alleviated. Uh, this is on top of some of the regulatory changes the Biden administration has imposed uh, starting this year, uh, where they're taking out some codes that could lead to potential upcoding and overbilling in the Medicare Advantage program. So all of this has the impact of putting some downward pressure on earnings, earnings outlook uh, for 2024. And it makes the annual update uh, for MA plans that much more important. Now, granted, enrollment in the Medicare Advantage program continues to rise, albeit at the mid-single digits versus the high single digits, but there is some more pressure on some of these plans due to lower rate environments as well as some regulatory changes. So a couple of weeks ago, uh, the administration proposed a cut in MA payment rates of about 0.16%. Uh, that may not seem like a lot, uh, but when you factor in as some of the, the issues I mentioned before, uh, it does have uh, an impact on, on plans. Uh, now, granted, this proposal was based off of some out-of-date information that didn't include year-end higher utilization. So a positive update is likely, and we'll see that by April 1st. But the big question is whether it will be enough to cover the increase in costs. So, what might this mean for plans and ultimately patients? So for the companies, they are going to put in an effort to maintain or grow margins. We could see some higher premiums. It's worth noting that close to 70% of MA beneficiaries are in zero premium plans. So that could change. Uh, we could see some higher cost sharing, some reduced benefits, and this could lead to a bit of a, an October surprise where seniors have uh, see their options for Medicare Advantage for 2025, and maybe they see those higher premiums, uh, some benefits removed, and they're not too happy. So it bears watching to see what this uh, rate, final rate announcement by April 1st means for uh, plans moving forward, which we'll know for sure uh, by around October. But it wasn't all doom and gloom. Uh, there were some positives. Um, now, uh, there is a Medicaid redetermination process that started in April at the end of the public health emergency. This is where plans started to disenroll people who were no longer eligible because they couldn't do so during the pandemic. Uh, while the top line numbers of who's being or how many people are being disenrolled is quite high. You gotta keep in mind that a lot of the plans anticipated this. So for example, Centene projected a $1.9 million million member dip in enrollment. And that is largely because they saw their in, uh, membership roles, especially in the Medicaid program grow. Uh, based on the earnings calls from uh, last quarter, uh, their projections seem to be holding firm. So while that number seems like a lot, it was projected. Uh, the entire process seems to be going fairly well for insurers, so no surprises there. What's helping here is that the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare enrollment is filling in the gaps. We saw enrollment surge to 21 million. Centene uh, leads the way given their footprint in almost 30 states. Now, this is all helped by, yet again, the Medicaid redeterminations with some of those members going into an ACA plan. They're also helped by uh, the uh, enhanced premiums that were included in the ACA. Now, the, the challenge and the risk for some of these companies, as much as they talk about the the tailwind from the ACA is that the enhanced subsidies, which are driving enrollment, could disappear by year-end 2025. And these subsidies provide no or low-cost premiums for people below a certain income of about 
a year, but also caps uh, spending at 8.5% of income. Uh, so uh, this could set up a huge cliff for uh, health insurers if they're not renewed. Now, for context, they're, they were scored at roughly 20 billion per year a couple of years ago. It's probably higher now, given the uh, higher enrollment. So uh, the election outcome could determine what happens to these subsidies. A second Biden term will likely mean some extension, and maybe even making them permanent, though the, there will be a cost aspect to it. A Trump administration might mean they go away because he does not like the ACA or Obamacare, in it, uh, as he would say it, and he wants to repeal it. I would keep an eye on what happens with the fight over the tax cuts or the expiring tax cuts. This is probably where we see this addressed. So uh, some early positives for insurers, but there's a potential cliff coming up uh, over the coming year. I'll turn it back to you, Elliot. Uh, yeah, but uh, you know, speaking of the elections in November, um, yeah, can you also tell us about the impact that the elections might have on the drug pricing provisions of the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act? You know, how, how do you see the elections affecting those provisions? Would would the Trump administration try to repeal repeal them? Would it be status quo if Biden wins? Yeah. So uh, for. Some context, uh, Trump is not a fan of pharmaceutical industry. As a candidate in 2016, he uh, did support uh, negotiating lower drug prices. He uh, opposed it uh, when in office and after House Democrats had passed their own bill. Uh, but during his four years in office, he proposed capping high costs Part B drugs based on international price in an international price referencing scheme that actually did not get uh, implemented uh, largely because it was towards the end of his his term uh, he also put in motion a an effort to import drugs from Canada which we're now seeing play out through the Biden administration um, so with that said again it's not like he's that friendly to industry um, but the IRA does have some mechanisms that are pretty much automatic in terms of uh, drugs, the number of drugs that have to be selected for price cuts and the bare minimum in terms of price cuts for those drugs. So could a President Trump then say he's, he's a, a master negotiator, he'll pursue deep discounts below the, the bare minimum, or will he just do the bare minimum? Um, Biden is probably just going to be the status quo in terms of how that's implemented. Now, there are some flexibilities that we could see play out under a Trump administration. One area is on uh, generic competition and how drugs are either included in the negotiating scheme or removed uh, specifically around what constitutes a generic, what is significant or sufficient uh, generic marketing and competition. The Biden administration has created a pretty high threshold for uh, what is generic competition and, and manufacturers and generic manufacturers would say it's too high and not even in statute in terms of their interpretation. So we could see the Trump administration reverse that, which would make it easier for some of the higher cost brand drugs to not make it onto the list or to uh, create a pathway where it's easier to get off the list and for generics to be considered uh, competition. So I think absent uh, repeal, which I don't think is likely largely because I don't think the votes will be there and there's uh, the, the provisions are actually popular. Uh, I think we'll likely see, at least under a Trump administration, some regulatory flexibility uh, for brand and generic manufacturers playing out. Great, thanks, Dwayne. Uh, it's going to be really interesting to watch. Um, all right, let's um, shift gears just a little bit and bring in Justin Teresi, uh, who covers consumer and industrial litigation and policy for us. Uh, Justin, you uh, you believe the EPA is set to finalize two 
pretty big proposed rules on PFAS substances or forever chemicals as they are known uh, in the coming months. Um, the first I think would designate uh, uh, certain PFAS as hazardous under the federal Superfund law CERCLA. And the second I think would place maximum contaminant levels um, of certain PFAS chemicals that are allowable in the nation's drinking water. You wanna come in, tell us more about these rules and, and whether you think there will be litigation challenging them? Yeah, sure, Elliot. So, so really quickly here, I think forever chemicals in many ways are, are becoming the forever issue uh, with federal policy coming out of the EPA right now. But both of these rules that you mentioned are, are really running behind. They've been delayed a series of times. Both were, were really first put on the table back in 2021. And for whatever reason, we've really seen a slowing in their progression to finalization. The first rule involving maximum contaminant levels or MCLs in drinking water, it's being promulgated under the Safe Drinking Water Act. And what the EPA is proposing right now is a reduction all the way down to four parts per trillion for two specific PFAS chemicals in drinking water. There's six total in the rule itself, but for the two that are most studied at this particular point in time, they're proposing this four parts per trillion uh, maximum level in drinking water. This is a dramatic decline from the 70 parts per trillion that's allowed, up to 70 parts per trillion that's allowed um, currently for these particular chemicals. So what's gonna happen here is if this becomes a final rule, um, public water authorities or, or water authorities in general are really going to have to reduce the levels of these PFAS in their drinking water to the proposed standards or the finalized standards. They're also going to have to monitor for these PFAS chemicals and importantly to possible litigation down the road, they're going to have to notify the public of levels of, the P, of PFAS that are in drinking water if they exceed those that are in the rule. If you can imagine, the rule's really not without controversy. There's a lot of folks out there who are expressing their concern over the costs that are going to be involved with complying with this rule. So we're seeing the main opposition right now coming from drinking water associations like the American uh, Water Works Association and local government associations that, that own these kinds of water providers, mainly the National Association of Counties, the U.S. Conference of Mayors, really those kind of small local government groups that, that have their voices on the ground in Washington. Uh, but the EPA is saying that the rules total analyzed cost from their perspective is going to be about $770 million to $1.2 billion a year. But the, the, the American Water Works Association commissioned a study, and they're saying that the proposed standards could exceed $2.5 to $3.2 billion a year with a total of $40 billion in capital costs just to get infrastructure where it needs to be to, to comply with these regulations. There's some funding that we're seeing coming down the road as a result of settlements with 3M, DuPont, Comores, and others you know, with water authorities, but that funding's capped at about $14 billion, assuming that those settlements are finally approved and folks participate. The bipartisan infrastructure law allotted about $10 billion more for these kind of water system upgrades that are going to be necessary to meet the, the, the drinking water standards. But, you know, assuming that that 40 billion in capital cost number is correct or, or, you know, what we haven't even tested for yet, those those sources of funding really aren't going to be enough to cover the true cost of what's involved with the rule here. And I think a lot of that has to do with the delay that's involved. There's been 122,000 comments made on the proposed rules. The EPA has to sift through all of those before it comes out with its final determination. I think it's really just demonstrative of the amount of interest that's involved here. And, you know, as far as the actual implementation timeline, what's been proposed is three years from finalization for, for these water providers to get up to date and, and to comply with the MCLs as they're proposed. Whether or not that changes or perhaps we see that stretched out a little bit in a final rule based on, on comments, you know, maybe the, the, point, the four parts per trillion level is phased in a bit more than we're seeing in the proposed rule. We're not really sure, but there, there, the delay has been pretty extensive here. There have been certain points where the EPA said these would be finalized by the end of 2023, then the end of February of this year. We're now into March. So we're really thinking this is probably imminent. The administration, administration is going to want time to defend these rules, assuming they'll be challenged. Um, but that's what's happening on the drinking water front. With, with the CERCLA rule or the federal Superfund law, what's happening there is that, again, these, these two PFAS chemicals, the two that are most widely studied, they're being proposed to be added to the Superfund rule. 
So what that means is that, you know, for private property owners who might own a contaminated site, they're going to have to take steps to remediate those sites and take the PFAS chemicals away from, from the soil or wherever, whatever else might be contaminated there. So this is estimated to cost of, of about $22 billion by the U.S. Chamber of Commerce or $700 to $800 million annually. Um, so, you know, again, big price tag here, and we're not really sure if, that, if that's going to account for all the contamination that's out there. Again, so much testing hasn't happened yet. So it's a big question mark as to what these rules will, will actually cost in the end. And the kind of sites we're talking about could be factory sites where contamination happened, where PFAS was used in manufacturing, utilities, you know, as we previously mentioned, water providers. The list kind of goes on and on about, you know, the, the types of places that could be facing these possible PFAS contamination. Um, so that's that's what's happening there. You know, well, you know, manufacturers like 3M, DuPont, and Comoros, they're not going to be automatically liable for cleaning things up under CERCLA. You know, they've provided these, there's this exception for useful goods, which PFAS would likely be considered um, as, in the, as they were provided to these manufacturers at different factory sites by, by the folks who made PFAS. But that's not to say that the private property owners involved here, they might not, they might try to sue 3M, DuPont, Comores, and their peers for contribution related to the cleanup costs that are involved. So big questions here with both CERCLA and with the drinking water proposals, not really certain where the final rules are going to end up. But what we are certain of is that there will be a, a big price tag involved. And I think related to your question too, I think litigation is almost certain around this, given the, you know, the, the price tags we're mentioning. You know, I think a challenge is possible under the major questions doctrine, which has been you know, more fashionable lately with challenging agency rules. But really, I think you know, similar to what you had mentioned earlier with the SEC litigation that might be coming up, you know, I think what we're going to see here is a challenge based around the cost of the rules themselves. And do the costs outweigh the benefits of the rule? And has the EPA properly taken costs into account before putting out a final rule? And, and so that, that sort of covers the regulatory uh, front. What about in Congress? Is there any any proposed legislation um, that's been introduced there? Yeah, and this is a great question. I think really goes to the, the heart of how widespread this PFAS issue really is, right? And the reason why I say that is that what's been introduced in the, in the House again this, this year after passing previously in 2021 with a democratically controlled House is the PFAS Action Act. So somewhat bipartisan bill. It was introduced by Debbie Dingell in Michigan and Brian Fitzpatrick from Pennsylvania. Growing co-sponsorship, definitely getting a little bit of traction, but likely not going anywhere this year, given the, the makeup of Congress at the moment. But what this legislation would do is really, I think, in many ways, not only codify the rules that we've just discussed that, are, that have been proposed, but it also, I think, does a lot to increase public awareness of these issues by instituting a PFAS-free labeling program for certain consumer products. It also extends the issue of PFAS contamination to air pollution. So really some avenues we haven't really seen yet. And what's also important to mention here is that states are really taking the lead with a legislative effort. We're seeing PFAS and food packaging banned now in some states. States like Minnesota, where a lot of manufacturing has taken place, have really started banning PFAS from not only a lot of consumer goods, but just that, you know, they've also instituted some drinking water caps as well. So really, I think what we're seeing is, is a movement to a point where if Congress does enact, the states are kind of doing the legislative job for them. And does the federal government ultimately want to be involved in what this landscape looks like moving forward? That's super interesting. Um, I didn't really think about the states as well. Um, all right, uh, Matt, let's bring you in. Let's talk some tech. Specifically, let's talk Meta, and uh, uh, here and it has today, March first, in the in um, in the company's lawsuit challenging the FTC's plan to toughen terms of a five billion dollar settlement from 2020 over privacy violations. You want to come in and sort of just give us a general sense of what this case is about? Yeah, thanks, Elliot. Yeah, this is an issue that Meta has has highlighted pretty prominently at it, in its last two earnings calls as as a potential risk. Uh, as you said, this this concerns the five billion dollar settlement that Meta entered into in 2020 after the the Cambridge Analytica matter. Um, as part of that settlement, there were some conditions um, attached to it uh, that the FTC adopted in a consent decree that, that basically required uh, Meta to go through uh, privacy assessments periodically. 
And the FTC says that after the first uh, round of those assessments, Meta isn't in compliance. And so instead of going to bring an enforcement action against Meta, the FTC found this um, provision in, in the statutory law that gives it power to modify its own orders. And so the FTC is, is moving ahead to change the order uh, that adopted the consent decree and to impose new conditions on on meta um, as 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 part to you know in order to resolve that and now meta is suing the FTC to try to stop it from doing that and and and, and both it has actions in two courts right now saying one look only a court can do that the court that blessed the consent decree can do this and two FTC, you are unconstitutional and you're acting in an unconstitutional way. And for that reason, you shouldn't be able to do that. So Meta is trying to stop this process before it can start right now. And, and just digging in a little deeper, what, what are some of these changes that the FTC is trying to make to, uh, to the consent decree? Yeah, it's pretty remarkable. Um, you know, so Meta says there are 800 changes to a, to a 23-page page document. Uh, and, and, and so it's, it's not just kind of tweaks around the edges. And, and in fact, most, most substantially to the business, the, there are a couple terms that, that the FTC is adding now or proposing to add. It's saying, one, Meta can't introduce any new or modified product or service until the, uh, an assessor signs off on its privacy program. Another one is that, that it effectively bans Meta from monetizing data of teenagers, those from age 13 to 17. This is something Congress has worked on. The FTC just is adopting it unilaterally and adding it to this to to the consent decree or at least proposing to do so at this at this stage so pretty substantial changes um a, from a business perspective that the ftc is proposing to add here and and so the hearing is today march 1st uh when do you expect a ruling yeah so this has been kicked down the road repeatedly um but the ftc is trying to push ahead with this and the plan right now is march 15th is is the next step in in its own proceeding to modify the agreement i think that's when the companies are due to formally respond um, and so the action today and in the next two weeks is will a court hit pause on that and 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 say no that FTC proceeding can't move ahead while this challenge to the FTC um, proceeds and so I expect the the court either in the hearing today or in the next two weeks um, will will give us um, some guidance on that. He 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 may rule right away. There's also a court of appeals challenge on this that, that's pending at the same time. I think in the next two weeks you're likely to see decisions from at least one of those courts, or if not, at least some some movement about when that decision is going to come. Maybe a a nudge to the FTC. Let's delay things for a month and um, and then we'll have a decision coming from there. But it's going to be very near term where we see we see a decision whether the FTC can uh, move ahead with this during the litigation. And how do you see it playing out? To me, I'm pretty skeptical that that Meta can hit pause on it, can put the brakes on the proceeding uh, right away. I think uh, I get you know it, that's it's not a sure loser, but I only give them about a 30% chance here. Where they're going to be much stronger is after the fact. Uh, if the FTC moves ahead with this, then Meta is still going to have the right to challenge it in court. And then I think a judge is going to be very suspicious that the FTC can, can do this sort of thing um, using its power to modify its orders. And so I like Meta's chances over the longer term. I expect most likely that that it will be a bumpy road in the near term over the next two weeks maybe over the next month or two as courts rule on this and and probably let the ftc move ahead great thanks matt um all right uh i'll sort of wrap up the call with the case that i'm watching uh, in the financials space uh this is a march 13th appellate argument in a terror finance case against Danske Bank, Deutsche Bank, and Standard Chartered. This is one of several similar terror finance cases uh, that I've been watching over the years, most of which the defendant banks have been able to beat so far. In this particular case, families of American service members 
that were killed uh, or wounded during uh, the war in Afghanistan sued the banks, alleging uh, that they aided and abetted terrorist groups in Afghanistan, like Al-Qaeda, uh, by allowing their financiers to secretly move money and evade uh, detection. Uh, the trial court in this case dismissed the claims for two reasons. First, the lawsuit didn't sufficiently allege that the banks knew they were facilitating terror attacks. And second, the lawsuit didn't sufficiently allege that the banks substantially assisted the terror attacks. Uh, so the case is now on appeal in the Second Circuit, and the parties will be in court arguing their case on March 13th. Um, and again, I expect the defendant banks will prevail on appeal as they did in the lower court, uh, based on a ruling by the same court, the Second Circuit, in a similar case last year where the court affirmed dismissal because the defendant bank's conduct was just too far removed from the actual terror attacks in question. Uh, and then on top of that, you have a Supreme Court case last year uh, uh, involving Twitter's alleged role in, in terror attacks. And the high court there interpreted terror finance laws in a way that would reject liability for banks unless there was some sort of direct relationship between the bank and the terrorists planning uh, the attacks. Um, so, you know, in this case, at most, uh, the plaintiffs have alleged that the banks should have been on notice that some of their non-terrorist customers were aiding terrorists and the banks should have stopped providing services to those customers. But I don't think that's enough under either Second Circuit law or the Supreme Court precedent to allow this case to proceed. What's at stake in the case? You know, alleged damages in the in these cases are never specified. Um, but you know, if you assume multi-million dollar payouts per plaintiff across several hundred, if not thousands, of plaintiffs, the figure could easily run into the billions of dollars. But that's only in the unlikely event that the case is revived and allowed to proceed. So again, the next key date is oral argument on March 13th, and I expect a ruling by the end of 2024. All right, um, so with that, I think we'll wrap up this episode of Votes and Verdicts. As you can see, a lot of interesting things to watch in March and beyond. Uh, as always, thank you for listening. And as a reminder, you can find all of our research on the Bloomberg Terminal at BIGO. And we encourage you to reach out to us with any questions that you may have. And we also encourage you to listen to other episodes of Votes and Verdicts on whatever platform you like to get your favorite podcasts. Thank you and have a great day. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here as in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. Plus.